Memory. Passion. Alone. Mourn. Guilt. Loneliness. Regret. Peace. Relationships. Unfamiliar. If you put God first, you'll never be last. This is Grief at the Cookout, hosted by DiCarlo Raspberry. Hello, family. Welcome to Grief at the Cookout. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with my fraternal brother, James Joseph Taylor. Jay Joseph is a musician, educator, director, and intellectual with command of dizzying array of disciplines and undying commitment to Afro-American progress. Join us as we discuss the topics of race, culture, structure, economics, cancel culture, and joy in our rich history unwritten. Brother man, brother man, brother man, my goodness to thee. Welcome to the cookout. (laughs) Brother, so excited to be here, man. Thank you. Thank you again for the invitation. I'm just glad you're here. Look, as we do in uh, grief at the cookout fashion, you got to tell me what's your favorite cookout food? So I have been trying to lose weight, (laughs) emphasis on the trying, and uh, I think my lack of success is attributable to the fact that I like all the cookout food. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I'm saying? If 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 your potato salad is is authorized, Mm -hmm. I'm here for it. Authorized. I like a beef rib. I like a pork rib. (laughs) You know, anything... Any anything that anything that that I can get next to that remind me of the, of the good old days and, and good people, I'm I'm here for it. Man, I love the cookout. That was one of the great things about our culture is just being able to come together and have some food. And for those that play spades, play spades and cards. <laughs> and, Cause not now. Let's be honest. Now I know sometimes you know everybody who's black think everybody can play space and that's See, not you true. starting you starting already <laughs> <laughs> i'm just saying and i don't want to be uninvited to the cookout because i don't play space <laughs> well see see you being real bougie because if you if you come to the to the cookout sit down at the spades table and don't know how to play you ain't gotta worry about getting uninvited because you might get cut <laughs> See what they play? They play spades and they play what bidwis? Spades. Oh God, you didn't took it back. He said bidwis. Uh huh. They yeah, play yeah. spades. They play pinochle. They play tonk. That's right. Pity pack. Tonk. <laughs> man, you gotta love the cookout, man. Listen yes, here. Listen <laughs> here. When uh, Uncle them be over there sitting underneath the tree, lightweight uh-huh. judging. Uh, Cousin that's right. on the grill. Right, 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 right. With the beers in the hand, right? <laughs> listen, listen. Hey, look, that ain't no damn fire. Yeah. <laughs> Y'all, you know how we got to do. We got to open up on that good high note. So this is for Black History Month. This is episode two of Grief at the Cookout. History unwritten. History unwritten. So, bro, like, when you when you think of Let's take it from two different perspectives here. Um, well, two and two and one, the same. Uh, when you think of Black History Month, uh, or as I call it, African American Heritage Month, 
And when you think of our history unwritten, just that like those two words right there, where does your mind take you? Where do you go? So when I think of when I think of African-American heritage monk, see, you setting me up. <laughs> uh-huh. Cause see, that's that's the avenue. Like, I like black history is nice. That's nice. But we're also talking about heritage here. So Well, and that's you know. exactly that's exactly it, Frat. Um, heritage is the key word. Black history is is diasporic, or at least it's become diasporic in the last 20 or 30 years. And so, you know, it used to be the case when we said black, we were talking about us. Mm-hmm. When we said black power, that meant something very specific in the United States. To say black now, you're talking about Jamaicans and other folks from the CARICOM nations. Mm-hmm. Um, down in the Caribbean, you're talking about Nigerians and Ghanaians and other folks from the continent. But to talk about African Americanness, is to talk about black folks that were bought here either either originally or or immigrated here within a certain time span and so when when I talk about you know black history month or african american heritage month I'm talking about the achievements and the culture and all those wonderful things that were handed down from our ancestors that that survived American racism, mm-hmm. you know, because it was it was truly its own thing, mm-hmm. and I think that that gets lost in certain ways mm-hmm. when we have this discussion. So that's the that's the first thing, or I think that that addresses the first question. When you talk about the history being unwritten, it's related to that, right? Because in this shift towards a more diasporic understanding of our history or of our blackness, of our negritude, if I can borrow that term from, from uh, Franz Fanon, or perhaps uh, Cesare Ame. Either way, we lose, we lose some of that heritage in trying to be other people. Mm. I'm going to just go ahead and keep it all the way funky. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? We, mm-hmm. we love to embrace our, our, our diasporic cousins and, and their different heritages and their different lived experiences and histories, you know, for whatever reason, I often think that it, it, it comes from us being ashamed of our own, but mm. that's what I think about when I think about history unwritten, because something gets lost when you do that. And it's very problematic in my view. So now I'm about to I'm about to add a layer onto everything that you just said. And so let's add on the layer of grief in this community. The the history unwritten has caused grief in our community. Yeah. Let's let's kind of like unpack this for a little bit of the type of grief that it caused economically, structurally, you know, relationships, how we live, all of that. So I think the first distinction that we need to make is the difference between in defining grief, right? Mm -hmm. It draws upon a distinction that's very important that we really need to point up. And that, that distinction is the difference between joy and happiness. Yeah. Joy is the happiness that or or joy yeah joy is 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 happiness that you decide to have mm-hmm. 
the contentment that you don't let anybody get at, it's not circumstantial by any means. Happiness is purely circumstantial. Mm. You know, you can be unhappy because of your your situation, whatever that might mm. be. You know, somebody somebody died. Something was taken from you. You know, you were put upon in some way, shape, or form. That will bother that will bother your happiness. But joy is literally the decision to not feed into that beyond the initial human reaction that we all have to, to these sorts of things. Mm. And so for me, I define grief as, as you know, relinquishing my joy. Mm. That's good. You have to you have to let somebody take take your joy. There was this song back in the early aughts. I can't remember the 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 artist's name, but she said in the chorus she would she would sing the thieves are at it again. Mm-hmm. Still in my peace of mind, but they won't win because of the joy that I have within. And so, you know, that's the that like that hit me. I, I think God, I couldn't have been no more than 15, 16 years old. But I was like, yo, that's heavy. You know what I mean? And I I, I went to church later and, and like my pastor at the time reiterated this. And this was something that our elders taught us historically. You know, when we look at the Maya Angelou's and, you know, just other folks that were in the movement when the when when moving was much harder than it is now. They taught us this when they were at their best through the way they lived their lives and moved through the world. And so this again touches on your question. You know, when we talk about black history and how how some of that history gets lost, we also lose this wisdom around how to keep our joy, how to not let people steal our joy, how to how to be human and, and feel, you know, whatever is impacting us at, at the given moment. But, you know, not to dwell in that place. And I think to your point, that branches off in a in a bunch of different places. Because yeah. if you let somebody steal your joy because they've temporarily made you unhappy. What ends up happening is you you become you know depressed you become downtrodden, mm-hmm. and as we all we often hear people say, hurting people hurt people. Yeah, yeah. So your relationships will be suspect, and and you know undermined. You will mm-hmm. have trouble. You'll have trouble at work. It'll show on you when you're moving through the world, and you'll have difficulty, you know, establishing and cultivating new relationships. Right. And so it's also cyclical, I think, you know, when you're when you're feeling all of this and you're internalizing it and not letting letting it go in in healthy ways, because we do need to fight against injustice. I don't want that to be misconstrued at all. Right. But at the same time, we're fighting against injustice. We need to remember what what all all sailors know. It's not the water that knocks up against the boat that sinks you. It's the water that gets inside the boat. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, while we're going through these storms and we're going to go through storms if we're out on the water, it's, it's just an ecological reality mm-hmm. um, and an existential reality. We just need to make sure that we're not letting that water remain in the boat. Mm-hmm. And so when we don't do that, again, 
we have all these these ill side effects. And the more we get away from our culture, the more we undermine our ability to keep that water from from getting in our boat and sinking us ultimately. Mm. So this is a good segue because you said culture. (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, something just popped into my mind recently. As we're talking about grief, we talk about culture and we talk about our history unwritten. We also talk about race and race is something that's oh, really Lord. prominent in our culture. <laughs> I got a feeling you know where I'm about to go. Oh, <laughs> so when we talk about cancel culture, for instance, recently something happened with Whoopi Goldberg on The View regarding uh, race, regarding Jewish, uh, the Jewish nationality. Uh and her statement on that. And as I'm walking this fine line, because <laughs> it's a fine line, you know, uh, that has to be walked when we're talking about this. Why do you think it was so hard for people, and I'm just going to say people, because we know who they are, to not in some way understand the avenue which she was coming from when she said, when she made that statement? I'm going to be frank. I think there was a little bit of opportunism as Mm. there has always been around these things. Mm -hmm. This weekend, um, I bought a book about Gunnar Myrtle's 1944, excuse me, book, um, an American dilemma, which was, which was like uh, one of the fundamental or one of the the original books on race relations in the United States. You know, mm-hmm. after after the souls of black folks, which an actual black person wrote, like it's one of the most influential books on race relations that cro- that had crossover appeal, right? Mm-hmm. And so. I bring up that book to say, or rather I bring up the book that I bought this weekend to say, you know, to to echo what this writer is saying in the book that Gunnar Myrtle's book, which was, which was um, commissioned by the Carnegie endowment. That didn't have anything to do with like actually helping black folks. They were trying to come up with policy on how to deal with black folks. And in knowing that black folks have kind of always taken responsibility for themselves. And we came up with strategies and things of that nature to, to advance ourselves and folks saw that it was successful. We got the voting rights act. Thanks in no small part, you know, cause I, I need to be, I need to be intellectually honest as well. If I'm gonna call out the intellectual dishonesty that I'm that I'm I'm leading up to in this preamble, right? Mm-hmm. Thanks in large part to certain certain foreign policy realities that existed mm-hmm. at the time. We got the Voting Rights Act, but folks saw the strategy that we used. 
we we had Martin Luther King who was knowledgeable and said, look, y'all can't be out over at the, you can't be at the UN talking to these de- decolonized countries, telling them how you want to be the new leader of the free world when you don't treat black people right. And so that became a strategy that that was used, sort of, sort of this uh, this guilt offensive, mm. you know, this this hypocrisy offensive, and that strategy has been lifted by other groups. And so, you know, what we had in the the uh, in the Whoopi Goldberg situation was folks sort of playing that that strategy. But again, doing so in a, and I think, in a disingenuous sort of fashion. Like the, like the reality is that race in America has a specific meaning, and we are in America. Mm-hmm. And when you're in, when like you use the definitions that are of the place that you are in. Granted, she was factually wrong because Hitler did say, you know, they're an inferior race. Mm-hmm. And so it it was like by definition racism, but I think the thing that we need to be careful of, and this speaks to your question about cancel culture, is that we need to be reasonable. You know what I mean? It doesn't really make sense for you to hold Whoopi Goldberg to the same standard that you would hold a college-educated scholar to. She mm. might have a degree from somewhere, but I'm pretty sure that is not in in history or sociology or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so to, to ask her to like sort of make that fine distinction when she's just speaking off the cuff, mm-hmm. 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 so to speak, like that that doesn't really make sense. And I think that like the folks who seized on this, who seemed angry about this, because there, mm-hmm. were, there were members of the Jewish community that were like, yeah, we get what she was saying. It just mm-hmm. wasn't as precise as it should have been. Right. And again, right. my critique to, to that, that argument is well how how precise do we expect like a comedian speaking off the top of her head to be but there were also folks who were upset and i think that they were being just like they were just being like a bit disingenuous mm-hmm. they they wanted to play the race card mm-hmm. so to mm-hmm. say and like you know it was one of it was one of those deals so it it is what it is you right know you I know mean? i i think for me the understanding what the factual definition of race is and understanding what race when we a, a lot of people especially in the black community think of race as the first thing that comes to mind is a color you know because yeah. that has often been associated with us you know um we as black people we are race you know but we are also colored uh darker hue skin etc etc yeah and so what i will say what kind of took my joy (laughs) what i let relinquish my joy in the moment of this was how she was dealt with uh knowing that there has been many many comments from many people of the uh, Caucasian community on that show that has made so many non-factual comments and they have not been dealt with the way that she was dealt with, you know? And I appreciate her even coming back to the show after that hiatus 
you know, saying that we are going to have many conversations like this, hard conversations. Uh, but it just, it just kind of took me, took me back a little bit, you know, with the current place of, of our race, of, of our economic status, our status as a whole, where we are and how we're continued to be, how we are continually to be dealt with in certain manners when people don't like what we say. Well, there's a, I've read an article over the weekend that I really should have sent to you ahead of this conversation called, uh, <laughs> who gets to create black culture. Mm. And it talks about how, you know, basically everybody that we cheerlead in Hollywood comes from a very specific background. Mm-hmm. To your point, when people think about blackness in this country, or when we talk about race in this country, we're pretty much talking about black people. Mm-hmm. You know, there are certain instances where, again, people will seize on on race and the tactics of, and the, or I guess I should say the social justice praxis around race that was that was minted by our people when it comes to other groups, most recently um, the wave of senseless violence against members of the Asian community writ Mm -hmm. large. Um, But generally they're talking about us and this article asked, well, who gets the, Oh, the article also pointed out that when you talk about black people, you're also there. We're also generally talking about poor black people. Mm. Those are the people who are considered authentically black. Wow. And, you know, there is like a contingent within our community that takes umbrage at that because we like to see ourselves as having progressed. Again, I'm I'm a communitarian. And so being someone that's from the inner city and sort of came back to the inner city after having some great experience and, and been afforded access that not everybody from where I'm from gets. I, <clears throat> I appreciated the acknowledgement, but it goes on. The, the article went on to make this point and say, look, everybody that y'all are cheerleading, they basically have the same background. Like they went to private school. Then they went to an Ivy league school. They're typically a woman. And now they out in Hollywood writing about poor black people. Mm. And I think like that article is relevant to the question that you asked because it's the same sort of deal. Like everybody that's out here screaming about race and social justice and all of this, like they haven't really had that experience. Like Mm. you, you're, you're like, have you really been put upon or is it is it one of these things, you know, where like where where you don't want people to ever forget? It's it's mm-hmm. almost like it's almost a hustle to some extent. You know what I mean? When you look at what we've paid out to to Israel, for example, it's a bit it's a bit wild. And to your point, like we out we out here just trying to get our student loans forgiven. We try and get we try <laughs> and get live. equal value for our houses when we sell them, without yes. having to without having to have one of our white friends come and like you know stand in for us, without mm-hmm. having to put pictures of a white family all over the house 
Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? These As we're are, facing regentrification. Not even it's not even gentrification <laughs> because like this has happened to the people out in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. It's brothers and sisters out in the suburbs who will ride through, and if they see too many black families, they know not to move there because one more will bring the property value of everything in there down. Right. Because but that's I how. Mean, but I mean, as this is happening in the inner cities, yeah, absolutely, has been happening. That is going on as well as realizing if there are too many black people in, in just the suburban community, like you said, that it will bring the value down. Yeah. And it's like, it's, it's, it's happening on both sides. If you're, if we're all together in the inner city, they won't invest. If we move to the suburbs, it's somehow less valuable because it is a market after Mm -hmm. all. And markets are Mm -hmm. subjective. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Demand is always a matter of subjectivity at the, at the beginning so it it goes back to this sort of question, right? Who's really oppressed? What level of oppression? Mm-hmm. Like who should really be using these tactics and making these arguments? Mm-hmm. And like that that's the question. And to your point, you know, we're still being handled a certain way. Because have always been. Because as Michael Jackson said, they don't really care about us. <laughs> and I, you know, I was explaining this to a white guy yesterday. And I said, and like I, I'm probably, I'm sure I'm gonna get, you're gonna get some emails about what I'm about to say, but I've been suspicious of Barack Obama since I was in college, and I don't fool with Kamala Harris. Mm. Like, precisely because they are the preferred black. They're not, mm. they didn't, they don't really have the the uh the heritage that we were talking about the the afro african american heritage that we were discussing so like that that sort of mistrust and fury isn't in their bones they're of a particular complexion you know they they code switch they come off a certain way they're international black and so what that what that equals up to is that they're easier to deal with interpersonally. There's no complication that comes from the due mistrust that any slave descended or American slave descended black person should have of these institutions. Mm. You know, and mm. they they don't have like the the ties to the black community that are going to cause them to, you know, have issue with being bought and have issue with paying fealty to those systems. Mm. And so, you know, we see this, we see this with, um, with slave descended Afro-Americans. Like this is literally the difference between a Cornell West and a Michael Eric Dyson. Mm-hmm. This is the difference. And like I remember friends from from Boston when we were in college that sort of drifted away from me when I was like, yeah, Michael Eric Dyson is on some bullshit. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like he is dick riding Obama for for the uh for the White House exclusive and the White House access. 
he is turning his back on these folks. See, I'm old enough to remember when Michael Eric Dyson was just happy to be in the room on PBS specials with Cornell West and Tavis Smiley. Mm-hmm. Like this cat mm-hmm. is on the make and we do have that in the black community, but by and large, and again, referencing this article I was telling you about, there is a very particular type of black person that they want. And like, I see this at the highest levels, you know, cause I did, I did college access work for the urban league. And that was definitely the hustle. It was like, yo, we need you to affect this sort of aesthetic so that you can fly under the radar and get all this stuff, smile at as many white folks as you can, because they love to give black folks money. We all know what the hustle is, but the fact of the matter is, is that it shouldn't be in place from from jump. And so yeah, you know, I think that's what we're what we're sort of getting at when we speak about what happened with Whoopi Goldberg, because going even even going back to her in the 1990s when she was dating uh, the dude from Cheers, the tall white guy. And mm-hmm, she was mm-hmm. tight with Robin Williams and uh, the other guy. I can't remember his name, yeah. but Jewish cat. I can't think of his name. Yeah, I know exactly Jewish cat. Hilarious. Yeah. But like, she was like, she was white folks' favorite black person. And that's how she ended up on, on The View in the first place. Oprah had the same hustle. But like, what we as a people have to look at is, if we got to turn into something other than us, for them to to like us, they don't really like us. But do they really like us? <laughs> they ain't never. They ain't never. They you know never... what I mean? When you when you talk about you know the acceptable blacks, that also, I do you. In your opinion, would you associate that with some type of form of elitism? Well, see, frat now now. Now, now, now you making me tell on myself. <laughs> well, I mean, because here's the thing. Here's the thing. Um, and, 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 you know, folks, this is, this is really like a whole rabbit hole because as we're talking about history unwritten, you know, we talk about things like black wall street and the things that, that black people had, but as it pertains to grief in America and, and our history, when we look at, the African-Americans who are in power, the the African-Americans who are quote-unquote acceptable, uh, there is some level of elitism that comes with that, with that power. And it's amazing to me how we look at people who have been a part of the civil rights movement, as you stated, Cornel West, Dr. Cornel, Cornel West, many others who in some, in, in my opinion, let me put it this way, that should be seen on a very high pedestal, even to, um, gosh, I can't think of his name. Um, du Bois? Not yes, the boys, not just the boys. Uh, crap, his name is escaping because I love to listen to him speak. Um, leader of our of our Islam community, um, um uh, Minister Farrakhan, minister. Yes, we look at these people, it's just interesting to me what you said 
as it pertains to the acceptable black. And that's why I asked, do they really like us? Well, see, you know, that's... we have to come package a certain way. We have to come this way to achieve what you have you know, to do. Different things. What you have to do is signal that you're going to pledge fealty to the system as it is. And the system as mm -hmm. it is serves the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, mm -hmm. which is weird because there aren't even really that many of them around anymore. Like mm -hmm. there is still society, but they're not really around like that. And so, you know, it's so bad that they've even gone undercover. Like you won't have people... You won't have people telegraphing that they, you know, their ancestor came over on the on the Mayflower. We were in Boston, like the people that lived over in, in Beacon Hill, they don't mm -hmm. telegraph that. They move a certain way. And if you're in the know, you recognize it. But right. they're not telegraphing that. So the idea that there's still a system that serves these folks, it it speaks to, you know, power and like how economics are meant bent to serve power but that that's 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 really what it comes down to is the fact that there is a system in place and that system is being protected and the only black people that they want are the ones who are pledging fealty to that system so like that that's really that's what the packaging is about and there are black folks who for many reasons some understandable, some not, have just said, we can't beat it, so we might as well just fall in line with it. And getting back to like the connection to grief, that's, that's a sign of the water that got into the boat. And it came down generationally. They killed Malcolm, they killed Martin, they killed Medgar. Then they, and then they like oppressed the Black Panthers. And after seeing all of that, seeing people be beaten by the police in your communities, seeing people be railroaded by the criminal justice system, seeing people who ran afoul of politicians that run these systems and, you know, not being able to, to fight back and win those, those political fights, those proxy wars, people said, we can't beat them. Mm. So we just going to fall in line. We're going to become respectable. And we're going to signal that we're respectful to this system. I said that you were you were going to force me to tell on me because I was really naive when we were in college. You know, mm -hmm. I I wore I wore the the pea coat. I had the I had the you know the skinny jeans, the slacks, the shoes. Man, I dress, was cleaner. dress, sir. You were dressed every I time was, I saw you. I was cleaner than the board of health. Shit, I had white girls going, hmm. <laughs> white girl, right. look, look, frat. White girls was like, this is that Sydney Portier shit. I... Uh, while I'm in sweats, standing next to you. <laughs> <laughs> look, look, with the with the uh with with the dreads up in the knot. Right, and a do-rag. I the do I had the do rag the boots the sweats listen, <laughs> listen because because I knew where I came from I knew that like this was the only way we were going to get out but where I was naive mm. was in that like I really thought that I was elite because mm. I knew how to I knew how to put forward this aesthetic and now, I did wait. 
Hold now, on, let me, let, let me finish this thought before you jump in. I knew how to put forth this aesthetic, and I held myself to a certain standard intellectually and in terms of my work product. And so, like, I got to a point where my grandfather died, and this was shortly after the 2008 financial crisis where wasn't nobody really trying to help me. All they mm. really cared about, I realized, was that, you know, he isn't one of those hoodlums. He's safe. We can have conversations. And there are levels to that. When they're walking down the street, if you got a hoodie on, you might be a problem unless it has a college logo on it. Right. Then you're safe. When you're at the job, well, he works well and he's black. And so we didn't met our quota. And he don't say nothing. He don't be talking about all this civil rights shit. So when we're when we're getting ready to fire people that we should have never hired in the first place and didn't train, we don't have to worry about him helping the the uh, the EEOC office. Mm-hmm. Then when it comes to politics, it's like, you know, they present well and they vote the right way, but they don't never ask for anything. They're safe. And then we see it with our leaders. They come in, they write these black stories or they write the black stories that we're comfortable with. And, you know, when the Academy comes knocking on the door, we can point to them. I call this, mm. I call this neo-tokenism. Mm. Go ahead, expound on that. Because like, it's the same, it's the same token. Like you're, you're still a token. It just looks different. It's polished up. Like, it's it's racism that's pretty as a new penny. Ergo, you're a neo token, mm-hmm. and that so like to that's a lot of us. yeah, nah, and like I got hip because I was like my the patriarch of my family is gone. Like, what am I demonstrating for my younger brothers? What am I like? What legacy am I? Am I demonstrating to people when I go out as the representative of my family? Mm. Is this really what I is this really the way I want to reflect the manhood that my grandfather tried to instill in me? Basically bowing and scraping and carrying on. And like what mm. I've what I've been doing since that time is applying like a very rigorous framework to like my decision-making, right? Mm -hmm. I read a book in law school called, um, or I read a a case called McCleskey and it knocked me out of law school. That was like where I really had what Paul Mooney calls the nigger wake-up call. (laughs) (laughs) And a brother brother by the name of Andre Smith, who was like the only black male law professor there, dreads, absolutely brilliant, unfuckwittable. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He put me up on a bunch of people that like I'm still reading to this day. It's actually what caused me to pursue my my degree in international relations and high politics. He basically he he hit me to Derek Bell and he he sort of shifted Dr. Bell's thought experiment. And this is how I this is how I, I vet my decisions and the things that I do. And I think it's very helpful for for black folks. So I'm gonna share this with you. He said, if a if an island popped up between 
Africa in the U.S. and only Afro-Americans, folks that rightly celebrate um, or black people for whom Afro African-American Heritage Month is, is coined and celebrates could go to that island. How would you organize society? Mm. Mm. And so like when I'm thinking about how I'm treating another black person, when I'm thinking about how I should vote, you know, and all of these things, when I'm thinking about health and wellness, this is what I'm thinking about. And it allows me to step into mainstream culture or it allows me to interact with like Western European culture or even, like I said, our our diasporic cousins in Africa or in the Caribbean and say to myself like, yo, this is either, this is just like good policy. Like this is just good shit. Like as artists, you know what I mean? Right. As artists, we look and we go, Symmetry is a good look. Symmetry isn't white shit. Symmetry is just good shit. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the it's the same. It it allows me to make those those judgment calls in other contexts, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Yeah. And so you know that 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 is that is how I do it, and that's how like you know I I weighed up the the Whoopi Goldberg situation. I'm like yo. I don't think any other culture would look at one of their comedians and be like, why didn't you define your terms? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We ask scholars to define their terms. We ask lawyers to define their terms. And like a serious debate, we ask people to define their terms. But this is a damn talk show. <laughs> you know what I mean? And like in the history, in yeah. the history... In the history of like Jewish intellectual thought, you know what I'm saying? Like you read Hannah Arendt and people like that. You don't, you don't never see, you never see them treat a Billy Crystal like a Hannah Arendt. No one does that to their own people. Mm-hmm. We only ever try to do it to like other people, again, mm-hmm. for like opportunistic reasons. And again, mm-hmm. This is like another one of these hot takes you probably going to get calls about. But this is this is why I don't like I've never believed in uh, I've never believed in sort of like getting special treatment purely. Let me make sure I phrase this correctly. I've never believed in having a lower standard because you're black. Or having someone apply a lower standard to you because you're black. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If some shit don't make sense, it just don't make sense. Like across the board. So like, shit, if a person makes a criticism of a black person that makes sense, I'm here for it most of the time. And I say most of the time because we do know that there are people and like cats who truly are in like the ivory tower and these sort of elite spaces, they specialize in making sound arguments with, with terrible motives. And that, you know, so like, that's why I say most of the time, but if something makes sense, it makes sense. 
I do believe in like letting a people deal with their own people. Like I don't think the the criminal justice system has any right adjudicating over black people. But at the same time, black folks need to be need to be thorough enough in their thought and in their their moral rectitude and their their moral praxis to deal with their own folks. I'm mm-hmm. writing an article about that now. Like this this local senator in Delaware did something egregious. Whole domestic violence situation. And I'm saying, look, y'all have no credibility. Give them to us. We'll deal with them. And in that same article, I'm saying, look, black community, as I'm telling them that they have no credibility, don't let us fail to have credibility. Mm-hmm. When he's handed to us, we need to deal with him for X, mm-hmm. Y, and Z reason. Mm-hmm. But that's basically how I'm looking at things. You know what I mean? Like, that's how I define elite. Getting back to your question, you're not elite if you're bowing and scraping and compromising yourself. You're not elite if you can only be strong because somebody is weak. Mm. Looking at you, white people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like if mm-hmm. if you're only strong because you keep other people subordinated, you're not you're not strong. Mm-hmm. And if your 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 eliteness. Mm-hmm. is based on this then like what are we even talking about and that's why now you see i dress like this <laughs> i go to the office and i'm like yo if we're not talking about if we're not talking about what i bring to the table we're not talking about anything because i got a degree in diplomacy if i wanted to be a diplomat i'd have took the foreign service officer test and went into the foreign service and been a diplomat i'm here to do this job not go round and around with with anybody, be they be they in my race or, or otherwise. And like, I think you know, to your point or to your question, like when we talk about what elite is, we need to define that, and we need to appreciate how, um, you know, how these past traumas that have not been dealt with tie into the ways in which we operate without. Right having defined our terms and operate in some truly problematic ways. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And like when we really get at that and, uh, and address those traumas, we'll realize that we have more bandwidth and more margin of maneuver to get free, as it were, than mm-hmm. we previously thought. <laughs> <laughs> Man, we Shit, touched I on, felt that myself. I mean that that. <laughs> I mean, you know, conversations like these, they again, it's this is a freaking rabbit hole because just being black in America is just being black in America is, whew, it's just so much. But then when you break down how how our society moves there's a show that just came out uh it's called uh the gilded age lord it's on uh it's on hbo that show has just kind of taken me aback just looking at it um in america you know we, we we've seen things like bridgerton and you know and how shonda rhimes kind of did that you know kind of di- diversifying what you know what that looks like 
But even watching a show like that and just looking at just looking at the black people itself and trying to find diversity. I mean, even to I, I read an article recently on um the reboot was it wasn't Sex in the City. It's called And Just Like That. And how yeah. they talked about how diverse it was and even Megan McCain's response about diversity and it's just so much and through the lens of the conservative and it's just it's just a lot i mean but this is just a freaking rabbit hole and it's just caused so much issues so so much grief but i mean you know if we're looking at at grief as not relinquishing our joy and and trying to find trying to find trying to maintain our joy knowing in what what we're living in not forgetting uh and and uh, and allowing yourself to be angry when you want to be angry to be sad when you want to be sad uh, how can we use this this constant grieving process although some of us may not look at it as grief but that's what it is it's grief the absence of joy, but how can we move forward? What ways do you think that we can move forward to keep our history alive, to remain intentional in what we're doing to, um, to allow the grief to kind of shape some type of positive thoughts provoke positive things in our culture. How can we do that? What, what, what do you think about that? So, so I'm a, I'm a, I'm a drop this on you and then I'm gonna run out the door. <laughs> Cause I don't know when they saw me walk up out that office, <laughs> you know, um, what I would say is again, Grief is the absence of joy and joy is completely at your discretion because joy is not circumstantial. Mm -hmm. What that means is you can set boundaries within yourself. Mm -hmm. It's your boat. You can design your boat however you want to make sure that the water doesn't get out. If you decide not to design your boat a certain way, you can put in whatever process that you want to get mm -hmm. that water out of your boat when it does get in. Mm -hmm. You're going to get splashed. You know what I'm saying? There, you're, there, there's no getting away from the water because you're surrounded by it. Mm -hmm. But your design and your process is completely up to you. So I, I would say have a, have a design and have a process, you know, and we focus, we focus a lot on both of those things, I think, in the present era. Mm -hmm. When you hear people talking about life design, what they're talking about is situating their life in such a way that the world has minimal opportunity to disturb their joy, mm. to intrude upon their joy. Um because you're gonna you're it's gonna disturb your joy, but to but to to effectively intrude upon your joy. Right. When we talk about therapy, what we're talking about is the processes by which we get the water out of our boat. Mm. 
And folks are leaning in, in one direction or the other, but it's a mix of the two. You need to figure out what that mix looks like for you. And then you need to put it, put that, and then you need to figure out what the particulars of each component of that mix are. And then you need to work your process. That's literally all it is, like set boundaries. That's why we're seeing now things that people think look unhealthy, but actually mm. aren't. We're seeing the younger set say to the elders, look, you out of pocket. You're not eldering right. Mm. So like, I need to set this boundary. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so that that's that's basically what I would say. Like, you don't have to constantly be grieving. People are going to constantly come at you. But like, if it becomes a game of, oh, I see you, but I'm ready. I got this pump ready. That water's coming out of my boat. I know it's going to storm, but I'm already, I know it's going to storm, but I'm already ready for that. Right. Then like you're you're halfway there. Of course, you know, there are times to there are times and I know I'm beating the hell out of this analogy right now, but you know, when the storm that you get hit with is not the one that you expected. But that's you still you still have you still have something and that's better than than being out there completely completely unprepared or just being out there with one bucket trying to bail your ship out so right that's 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 what i would say man like we you can't focus on what they're doing you need to understand what they're doing but you can't live in that place mm. you know and like that that is is the long and short of it. Mm-hmm. Know what you're going to be hit with as best as possible. Mm-hmm. Learn from every interaction, from every experience. And after every experience, make make your, you know, make your life design and your therapy practices better. Mm-hmm. And you just keep on pushing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as much as we can, still because we are losing a lot of our history reach back to those those examples of true black excellence that is people who who uh who found a way to move through this life not not corrupted by this life let's put it that way and incorporate some of those practices into your situation mm-hmm. see if you can move through this this place of like this this era of neo neo or I guess I should call it crypto racism without mm-hmm. becoming a neo token and still put forward you know the the sort of work if you can move through this this new era of crypto racism without becoming a neo token and still put forth the sort of cultural product you know, or or have the communal the communal impact that a Maya Angelou or a, or a Malcolm X or shit, Mister Mister King from your neighborhood that ran the barber shop, then you won. That's the real black excellence. Mm-hmm. Black excellence isn't getting a little bit of money, looking right. non threatening to white folks and being loved by by folks that ain't your community. Black excellence is being objectively excellent, doing something for your family, 
mm-hmm. doing something for your community and then doing something for whoever else comes after that. Family, I would like for you to consider how can you keep your rich history alive? How can you use the grief of our culture for good and keep it intentional? Happiness is circumstantial. Joy isn't. And remember, you don't know where you're going if you don't know where you came from. You might join in grieving, but you're going to come out healed. I love you and thank you.